0: I remember covering the 2000 election for George W. Bush, then governor of the state of Texas. And there was still a a Texas identity then, this sense of, uh, you know, independence. This is how we do it in Texas. This is the model that works here and then the war in Iraq and uh, Afghanistan after 9-11. And that has really just sent Texans into one side or the other. That's
1: Jason Whiteley, senior reporter at WFAA the ABC affiliate in Dallas, Texas, and co-host of the informative, artfully-named podcast, Yolitics, covering all things political in the Lone Star State. And I think, to add
2: on to that, that it's almost like people are spoiling for an argument, they're spoiling for a fight,
1: and politics sort of pervades everything. And that's Jason Wheeler, co-host of Yolitics and also news anchor on WFAA Dallas. Two Jasons, one great podcast, I'm Robert Pease, and this is The Purple Principle, a podcast about the perils of polarization, kicking off our series on state-level polarization during this primary season by looking at Texas, the state as big as a big country that once was a country, having won independence from Mexico in the 1830s. Today, though, Texas is one of the nation's biggest melting pots with the second-highest percentage of Hispanic citizens of any U.S. state. It's clearly one of our most vibrant states economically and culturally. Texas is also a culinary powerhouse, getting some credit for the hamburger, half credit for Tex-Mex cuisine, and full credit for the fajita. And would there be so many grills in American backyards without that Texas boosterism and boasterism? It's political red meat on the Texas Grill this episode, meaning discussion of recently signed bills that essentially eliminate abortion access, restrict voting access, and allow for unlicensed open carry of firearms. Will this legislation trigger electoral backlash? We'll be discussing that with the Jasons of Yoltics, but first, some important fact-finding. Who came up with their awesome show name? Jason Wheeler has the answer.
2: And so we started coming up with all these brilliant names, but the problem with it was that they were all like two or three or four words long, it's more like a sentence than a name. And everybody kept telling us who was really into podcasts, "Uh uh-uh, you got to get it down to one or two words. And I was standing at my desk after we brainstormed forever and ever, and I just said, gosh, it's almost like, you know, you need something that rhymes with politics, politics, and politics." popped into my head. And I had remembered some old branding, marketing training from a long time ago that said, people tend to remember words that are not really words. So, you know, obviously, yolitics is a mashup. It's not a real word. And so it might uh, be something that people remember more.
1: Yeah, it's great. And it derives from yolitical science, right? Something you <laughs> studied in college <laughs> mm-hmm. way back in the day. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's a great name. And you've done, if I'm not mistaken, over 150 episodes, which is quite a record. Do you have a favorite guest or guest inside that you just keep thinking back to?
0: That's a good question. I mean, we've had some good episodes that listeners have liked. But one of our most listened to was when the Lincoln Project came on uh, with us right after January 6th of 2021 and said that they were going to start targeting no longer Trump since he had lost the election, but they're going to start targeting Ted Cruz. And that one got uh, a lot, thousands, tens of thousands of, of listens
1: So this is part of a series we're doing on polarization at the state level. And there's the feeling, I think, that Texans have a really strong identity. And we just wondered, is this polarization starting to weaken that identity? Are people becoming more sort of Republican or Democrat in the national model and less commonly Texan?
2: I think so. I think people here would argue that fiercely because people do like to still you know, maintain that they have that, quote unquote, Texas independence, that independent streak. Uh, but when we get down to it, and this is what I say about Republicans and Democrats, too, I think that you have a lot more in common than not. And I think that one of the things you have in common is that you like to think that you're perhaps more of an independent thinker than you are. If I can add one more thing there, Robert, I'll bring up the G word because I think that's a big part of this in Texas and everywhere else, and that's gerrymandering. We just heard from, in one of our podcasts recently, from a Republican county judge in Tarrant County, which is right next to us here in Dallas, it's where Fort Worth is located, and he talked about how before the last redistricting that was done um, from the 2020 census, he could count one, maybe two senatorial districts in the entire state of Texas for the Texas Senate that was actually a toss-up. Everything else is safe Republican or safe Democrat. No chance, you know, at least in his mind, that it was even possibly going to flip in those places.
1: We also listened in that episode about your, your discussion about upcoming primary races, and it does seem like there's special attention to the attorney general's race. So I was wondering... If you could tell us who's in the running, why that race is so important, and maybe especially important in Texas.
0: Yeah, we've uh, done a a couple of episodes on this, uh, but the attorney general in Texas, just quick zoom out on this thing, is the third most important elected official in the state. It's the state's top cop. Right now, it's someone who is uh, named uh, Ken Paxton. Ken Paxton might have made news in other parts of the country. He has, uh, he's sued... Biden and Obama a number of times. He was a massive Trump supporter. He's still in office. He was there on January 6th on the ellipsis there with President Trump at the time, you know, rallying the crowd before they marched down to the Capitol. But Ken Paxton, for as much as primary voters love him in Texas, he's also been caught up since he was first elected in 2015 on a felony state charge for securities fraud. Here we are seven years later, that charge has never actually gone to trial. It's still pending, it's bounced around the state, and it's still out there. So Paxton has some ethical issues. That has launched three people running against him. The first is a Congressman named uh, Louis Gohmert. He is uh, a far-right Congressman, a a big supporter of President Trump. The second is uh, our land commissioner here. His name is George P. Bush. He is uh, Jeb Bush's son. He's the, uh, you know, uncle. uh, His uncle is George W. His grandfather is George H.W. Bush as well. He is a big Trump supporter too. Texas is precious and we must protect her. Under the leadership of President Trump, our country was strong and vibrant again. But because of the failed leadership of liberal ideas, our country is suffering. And then the last person in the race is a former state Supreme Court justice, Ava Guzman. So these are solid people who are entrenched in the GOP in Texas who think that Ken Paxton is vulnerable for those reasons I just mentioned.
1: And I think you're coming up on about 20 years now as a Republican trifecta with no state-level Democrats. But the legislatures recently passed some pretty strong stuff, if you think about open carry, restrictive abortion, restrictive voting access. So it would seem that maybe there should be a pendulum swing. There often is after strong legislation. Is there any sense of that happening?
0: Yeah, at the end of the day, Republicans go vote in this state. Democrats just don't go vote. Beto O'Rourke is a former congressman from here. He ran against Ted Cruz. He's running for governor right now. And one of his famous lines in the campaign trail is, Texas is not a Republican state. Texas is a non-voting state. And he is right about that. And Robert, just to point out, too, while Republicans dominate this state at all levels, this state is shifting demographically here, and we've seen this in the numbers, and that's what has the Republicans kind of spooked in this state. There are a lot of people moving to this state from east and west coast. There are a lot of immigrants coming here. And with diversity and the change of demographics, we are seeing the past few years how Republicans aren't winning by as large of margins as they have in the past. And that has uh, you know conservatives concerned. I, I did pull a few stats on this. Back in 2012, Romney, uh, Mitt Romney beat President Obama by 15% in Texas. Fast forward four years, Trump defeated Clinton here by nine points. So Clinton cut that in half and then Trump beat Biden in Texas by six points. But when and if that great purple wave ever rolls over Texas, or the great blue wave, as they say here, and turning Texas purple, I think it's going to be maybe a decade or more, but who knows?
1: Those are two special Jason guests today, Jason Whiteley and Jason Wheeler, co-hosts of Yolitics and anchor reporters at the ABC Dallas affiliate WFAA. That was Jason Whiteley there, making a point about the change in presidential voting patterns in Texas and the possibility of purpling trends. However, we have two highly informed upcoming guests who question that projection. Dr. James Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at UT Austin, a respected political scientist and pollster who's been gauging voter sentiment in Texas for over a decade.
3: The question you ask in the overall sense of essentially... Was the Republican agenda that was passed and signed by the governor in 2021 a bridge too far for a general election in 2022? Those are positions that are obviously opposed by the vast majority of Democrats, but that split Republicans. And so you get very narrow Republican majority support for those, but a very significant pluralities of Republicans that oppose that. This is legislation that is Promoted by Republican legislators who do not want primary challengers from the right and are not afraid of the general election electorate or at the very least are willing to face that problem when they have to. I mean, I think as we look at polling and we look at the electoral environment, I don't expect that this is going to work to Democrats' advantage extensively.
1: Dr. Henson's caution against blue or purple expectations in red Texas is echoed by another uniquely positioned observer of all things Texan, Dan Goodgame. He's editor-in-chief of the widely read and widely respected Texas Monthly.
4: I think some analysts get this wrong because they assume, as leaders of the Democratic Party in Texas do, that the rising proportion of Texas who are, quote, people of color, end quote, will automatically vote Democrat. And never mind that many Latinos are Catholics who support abortion restrictions, that they favor uh, restrictions on immigration, larger police forces, and a strong oil and gas industry. And I think that's, you know, that's one of the reasons why this, you know, demographics is destiny argument is not proving out.
1: Important things to bear in mind, but what about Governor Abbott's rallying cry of don't California, my Texas? Might the continuing movement of California citizens and companies into Texas be tilting that all red political balance? Jason Wheeler is first up on that trend.
2: Yeah, that's an interesting phenomenon, and I think it cuts both ways. Mm Interesting thing is, though, even though both parties are sort of welcoming them in that way, you do hear a lot about, you know, sort of the big bad Californians, you know, they're going to come here and change our state. They're going to don't California our Texas uh, sort of thing. The funny thing is you don't hear anybody saying don't California our Texas when, you know, like Governor Abbott and his predecessor, Rick Perry were extremely aggressive and continue to be so in going after California businesses to get them to relocate to Texas so they don't mind California ing our Texas in that way uh you know when when they're going after a SpaceX a Tesla a Blue Origin Toyota you name it I mean the, the list just goes
1: on and on and on yeah but it does seem like we've been reading that, Texas is, you know, trending more purple, trending more blue for a long time. And it just, uh, the the finish line keeps moving forward. You know, they keep moving the goalposts. So why does the national press continue to get that wrong? And is there a risk of doing that again in the anticipated race
0: between Governor Abbott and Beto O'Rourke? I don't think they're getting it wrong. I mean, if you look at the numbers, especially the presidential numbers, you can see it actually changing like that, but everyone wants it to happen in that, you know, in this cycle or that cycle, it's, it's not going to happen as quickly as people expect it to happen, but the trend lines are clearly showing that Texas is heading purple, and I think they're going to continue to show that as we move forward here. At the end of the day, Republicans are genius at messaging. I don't have to tell you this, Robert, you know that. Democrats are not very good at messaging at all. They'll tell you, yeah, we need to learn a lot from messaging.
2: Well, and it's not just messaging either. Republicans are expert at turning their voters out in the elections. And that's why Beto O'Rourke back when said that Texas is not a red state, it's a non-voting state. So it's a question of who can energize the voters and get them to turn out. When he gave Ted Cruz the scare of his political career, in 2018 in that senatorial run that was far closer than a lot of republicans uh, thought it would be and certainly a lot closer than they wanted it to be
1: that's interesting speaking of beto i don't know if you remember uh during the race with senator cruz i think it was actually on the colbert show they had triumph the insult comic dog interview beto all right folks No, believe
0: it or not, this is not the 12th man on every NBA team. This is the one and only Beto (laughs) (laughs) O'Rourke. I I, I don't remember that one, though. That's good. though. (laughs) Yeah.
1: So turning now to local issues, you recently had an interesting show, we thought, where you had a Democratic and Republican judge talk about how state government can sometimes trample on local government. So we're wondering how common a concern is that in Texas with the huge number of counties that you have?
2: Oh they're they're going nuts about it right now local control and you're going to hear that phrase over and over and over again because you know after you know decades and decades of of being the party that was all about local control Republicans at the state level the leadership has done somewhat of an about face on that especially here during the pandemic and uh, governor Abbott ran afoul of a lot of people in his own party and you could argue that that's why he's facing challengers in his primary this time around because he you know issued this Uh, mask mandate statewide and shut down early on in the uh, pandemic. And now you see the flip side of it. He's not making anybody happy because now he's got an order out there saying that at the local level, you cannot uh, mandate masks as a local governmental entity.
1: What about the state legislature then? After two decades in power, are there any Republican members more open to negotiation and compromise?
0: Yeah, I think the speaker of the house probably like most states, the speaker of the state house in Texas is elected not by the public at large to become speaker of the house but rather by the members of the body. But the speaker is traditionally at least past what 15 years or so has been elected unanimously.
2: That being said, you know, it's almost window dressing in a way because, you know, Democrats will tell you that on policy though, this last legislative session gave a lot of red meat to the conservative base here in Texas. Uh, you know, this, uh, the abortion law that probably so many people across the country are familiar with now where Texas allows anyone to sue related to abortion cases that uh, go forward after uh, six weeks of pregnancy, about six weeks of pregnancy when a fetal heartbeat is detected. Also,
0: open carry without a license or training. And that's the Trump effect. That's clearly the Trump effect because the base has moved that way. Open carry. You know, Texas has been a a Republican state for almost 20 years in the legislature. And then as the Republican base, the voters have moved farther and farther and farther right, they finally came around to it thinking, if I want to get reelected, I got to put some points on the board and I've got to pass something like open carry. I've got to pass these things. And it sailed through the Republican side after After session after session, every two years of it failing, failing, and failing.
2: Even despite the fact that a lot of uh, chiefs of law enforcement came out publicly against it.
1: Yeah, well, you know, it's hard for us to judge that argument from afar, but I kept thinking about the Johnny Cass song, Don't Take Your Gun to Town.
4: (laughs) His his mother's words echoed again. Don't take your guns to town, son. Leave your guns at home, Bill. Don't take your guns to
1: town. I wonder if the opposition thought about playing that. <laughs> it's <a> pretty persuasive <laughs> right? tune. But we also want to talk about the power grid. And we did notice there was a little bit of a power outage, I believe, in Austin, a few other places, with a storm in early February but nothing huge like last year. So is there a big sigh of relief that you've had a storm and the grid has held?
2: I think that huge sigh of relief you may have heard came from Governor Abbott just by himself uh, because it's on the line here. Um, And, you know, it was supposed to be the number one priority in the last legislative session. Well, there were a lot of other priorities that got in there. And then they did get around to doing some things with the electric grid, uh, specifically asking for winterization on the part of the generators, the the power, essentially at the power plant. But critics uh, were really upset that they didn't do more for the producers, let's say, of natural gas to winterize that so that you don't have gas freezing at the wellhead. And you can't get it to those power providers to be able to run the plants. The open question is, were those changes enough to prevent what we saw last February when you had Texans freezing to death in some cases inside their homes, which had gone below freezing? Some parts of this state were below freezing for 205 consecutive hours. You had people pulling the artwork off their walls, throwing it into the fireplace to stay warm and to cook because they have been without power for so long. This affected, I think the power disruption affected 69% of Texans in some form or another. And so whether you were Republican, Democrat or independent, you were touched by what happened there.
0: And just to back up for listeners who might not be in Texas, but Texas has its own power grid. On the East Coast and West Coast, there's the Eastern Interconnect and the Western Interconnect. And Texas decided to go it alone. And that was a smart move for a while because it kept energy prices down in Texas. But going it alone means you can't plug in to the Eastern Interconnect or the Western Interconnect. So if something happens, like we saw last year, February 14th of of 2021, then the lights go out and there's no one really to help out there.
1: Yeah, well, last question, we ask all of our guests to show a bit of purple. Uh, What we mean by that is to mention a reasonably well-known Texas Democrat and Republican living or dead who maybe were a little less partisan who could, if they were around, possibly help bridge the divide and and move some things forward for citizens rather than just uh, their base. And I knew you were going to do that. And so I thought long and
2: hard about this and I ended up and this is kind of sad in a way, I think, but I ended up choosing two people who have passed away. Um, But I I chose on the Democratic side, LBJ, who is an uh, an iconic Texan, of course, uh, larger than life guy you know, for all of his faults. And, and, you know, there were certainly faults there and there were certainly huge missteps in his administration. But you look back on that administration and again, different time, but Medicare, Medicaid, civil rights, voting rights, education, environmental legislation.
4: Every American citizen must have an equal right to vote.
2: Huge legislation came out of that administration. And LBJ is renowned for having just been a charmer and a great arm twister. Uh, on the Republican side, I chose the late uh, President George H.W. Bush, who was. A, uh, I don't think he was a Texan by birth, like uh, Whiteley, but uh, he was grandfathered in, uh, spent a lot of years here. And again, uh, a lot of bipartisan uh, legislation that was pretty big that happened during his, his time there, the Clean Air Act and Americans Dis- with Disabilities Act. And This historic act is the world's first comprehensive declaration of equality for people with disabilities. The first tackling or trying to tackle AIDS in Africa, there was a
0: lot that was done there that required support from both sides. As far as the two people, I have two living people. Both are current members of Congress. Both represent areas in the Dallas, Texas area. One is a Democrat. His name is Colin Allred. He's, a form, he's an attorney. He's a former Tennessee Titan NFL player. Uh, he worked in the Obama administration. Uh, but he is someone who reaches out and works with the other side. And what I'm trying to find uh, is common ground here. I do think that there uh, are a lot of folks on both sides of the aisle who aren't, who don't disagree that much on what needs to be done. We're mm-hmm. just disagreeing about how to do it. Okay. Hopefully we can get around that. And he has a buddy on the other side who's also a member of Congress from North Texas. His name is Van Taylor. And Van Taylor is a former member of the Texas Senate. He is uh, a Marine. He served in Afghanistan, I believe Iraq also. The four-country caucus is 25 veterans, uh, half Republican, half Democrat, uh, all political stripes from
2: all over the country, all services. Uh, And uh, we come together uh, every other week to talk about issues that are important to us that have a common bond of of working on service uh, and
3: our military and national security.
0: Both of these guys are part of a bipartisan caucus in D.C. where they look for ways to bridge the differences that both parties have. Now, because of that, Van Taylor faces a pretty serious challenge right now in the primary. Can he survive that? Are the voters in his district okay with his bipartisan outreach? We shall see how that one turns out. But it's hopeful, Robert, that there are at least still people out there today who have the R or the D next to them who are still willing to reach out to the other side.
2: And Robert, I'll say here, I I agree with both of Whiteley's choices there. And who knows, maybe I'm seeing this through too dark a lens when I say it, but it does feel a lot like in many corners, though, that bipartisanship, if it hasn't died, it has certainly suffered some major casualties. And, you know, I'm talking about our politicians here, but in the end, our politicians are a reflection of us. And uh, the, the more polarized and partisan we become, they're going to do the same because they want
1: our votes. That was Jason Wheeler there making a point about acute hyperpartisanship among politicians and voters, not only in Texas, but in the country writ large. That's what this Purple Principle series on polarization at the state level is all about. Are we witnessing the end of bipartisanship in our two-party politics? Are those purple hues long seen in many regions of the country, especially at the state level, becoming more angry red and blue? And is the zero-sum politics of our nation's capital coming to your statehouse and eventually your town or school board meeting. We'll be taking an audio tour around the country centered on those questions, including visits to the great states of Minnesota, Maine, Georgia, and others. But this month, it's all Texas, so hugely important on so many levels. Many thanks to Jason Whiteley and Jason Wheeler for sharing their you perspective with us. Yolitics can be heard on all major streaming apps and found at wfaa.com slash Next up, our featured guest will be Dan Goodgame, editor-in-chief of Texas Monthly, more a media vertical now than just a magazine. Dan himself is a former White House reporter for Time magazine, a Rhodes Scholar, and Pulitzer Prize finalist. And his perception is that the powerful Texas identity is holding its own.
4: Well, we do suffer from polarization in Texas, Robert, but less, I think, than the rest of the country. The identity that Texans hold as Texans is stronger than in any other state. And if you ask someone who grew up in Lubbock whether she identifies as, you know, first as a Republican or as a Texan, she'll say Texan. And a Democrat from San Antonio will say the same, because there are all these things that people have in common. I mean, Texans of all political stripes bond over, you know, barbecue and tacos and college football and Willie Nelson.
1: Texas Identity Part 2 next time on The Purple Principle with Texas Monthly Editor-in-Chief Dan Goodgame. We hope you'll join us for that episode and travel with us for this extended series on state-level polarization. Also, please join us on Apple subscriptions or Patreon for exclusive content. This is Robert Pease for the whole Purple Principle team with special thanks to composer Ryan Adair Rooney for some additional Texas twang. The Purple Principle is a Fluent Knowledge production.